Hi, Dr. Nasser. How are you? I'm great. Good morning. How are you? I am excellent. Um, okay. Love talking to you about all the things. And since it's Movember, we're going to talk about men's health. And I was just asking you, do you see a change? Have you seen a change? Because we've had Movember getting bigger and bigger. And of course, it's a commercial thing as well now. But have you seen a change in like men coming to you in droves trying to uh, get themselves sorted out? Um, from a numbers perspective, uh, I think it'd be difficult to say yes. Um, I think probably the most obvious thing is I've just seen a lot of strange mustaches. But uh, yeah, no, other than that, I, I, I think you're talking from a kind of health-seeking behavior perspective. I've not noticed a sudden kind of surge, no. More whether there's a, a lag in kind of, you know, it, it may be taking an effect for a month and then people come in in the new mm-hmm. year, who knows? Mm-hmm. <laughs> Okay, so starting off, uh, the term that has been popularized in the last couple of years, low T, low testosterone, it sounds really, I just think it sounds really cool, right? Low T, it's not cool. <laughs> Could you, can you just tell me what you know about it and have you, the, the term itself and, and how you've seen it sort of evolve and then what you're seeing in patients? Yeah, I mean, uh, you know, low T, I, I think that kind of terminology, uh, it's a bit of a kind of bro science terminology, but effectively what it's referring to is low testosterone. And, you know, I, I think it's, it's definitely an area that uh, there's been a lot of focus on or has certainly become a lot more popular in the last, I'd say, five to 10 years. Because prior to that, it was really classified as a, a lifestyle issue. And it, 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 and it actually, to be honest, to this day, it's not particularly something that's necessarily on the radar of most most doctors. So even when I think back to the start of my practice, um, it's not something that we generally checked. You know, we, we, you know, we weren't routinely checking males for their testosterone, which I think was probably doing them a disservice. Uh, and I think probably the big difference between men and women uh, and I guess we'll talk about sort of andropause and, and menopause andropause being the kind of male equivalent is that with menopause you're kind of getting a bit more of a sudden drop off so it, it's quite an obvious transition whereas with males it's a kind of slow grind for you know over maybe a, you know 15 20 year period so uh, it's not particularly well recognized I, I think the other problem is that and the, the the range of symptoms is quite diverse. So, uh, you know, particularly in the context of a medical system, which has become very subspecialized, you've got everyone focusing on their own individual areas. So if you have someone presenting with a sort of textbook classic range of symptoms from, you know, low mood to lack of uh, libido, to sleep disruption, to, um, you know, storing fat and not particularly gaining muscle, um, there might not really be the sort of number of physicians there, you know, who are going to kind of piece that together. So I think it's neglected, but it's certainly something that's become a lot more popular in the you know, popular science, at least. And I think that's translating through to medical practice. And effectively, I mean, you know, it, it's, it's, it's a low level of testosterone. And I guess, you know, if you look at the reference ranges for testosterone, uh, like a lot of these, uh, reference ranges are very broad mm-hmm. so you know you're talking from the low end of normal to the top end of normal you're talking probably around about a four or five x difference and so you you could have someone actually who's classified as normal who is very symptomatic 
even to the extent of someone who may even be in the upper, you know, tertiary of, of, of testosterone. But if they're used to a higher level, then relatively they're going to feel symptomatic. So I think the, the levels are fairly arbitrary. And I think a lot of it comes down, you know, it gives good context, but I think a lot of it comes down to the, the symptoms of the individual. And we're reading that testosterone levels are declining in younger men and that prescriptions for testosterone are increasing in, in, in younger men. And then I've seen some descriptions for that. Some reasoning for that is the reasoning for a lot of things, lack of exercise, um, poor eating and sleeping habits. Are there, what, why do you, first of all, do you, do you see this? And second of all, why do you think testosterone levels may be declining? If they are, yeah, I, you know, I, I can't quote you the sort of empirical evidence, but uh, undoubtedly, yes, levels are decreasing. I think you know it probably goes hand in hand with the reduction in sperm quality and number yes. that we've seen in the last generation. I think I've heard statistics of the halving. Uh, yeah. So, um, yeah, I, I think there's two aspects to this. We we are seeing lower testosterone levels, and I believe it's it's a it's a lifestyle issue. We've spoken about this before. We're just living a lifestyle that's far removed to sort of 99.9% of our time on this planet and the kind of environmental conditions that we evolved to be under. Uh, and I, I think it's across the, the board. So, you know, sleep disruption is a significant contributor. Uh, poor diet, um, alcohol consumption, mm. high stress, uh, you know, toxin exposure. So I, I think it's a whole range of reasons. I think when it comes to therapy and younger people seeking therapy. Um, I, I think that's a lot to do with what we were talking about earlier about the kind of popular science and you know all that information kind of being out there and people sort of um, increasing their own knowledge uh, right. other than just through their, their doctor and kind of empowering themselves to seek it, whether that's the right thing to do. It's a case by case basis, but there, there is this, I, I guess, worrying trend that there are people seeking a quicker fix mm. earlier on in life when it may not be necessarily or certainly appropriate from a kind of you know if you look at the end point sort of overall health span and, and lifespan ultimately it, it may not be the right maneuver I, I think the other issue is that a lot of people are getting their supply just through the gym or mm. without um, physician supervision maybe not even through follow their own because they just don't know where to go to, to get it. And I think the significant pitfalls when it's done that way, because, you know, I, I, I've got quite a large caseload of people and a, a proportion of those have come to me having been on it for a period of time before and had their supply through a third party, uh, whether it be a gym or somewhere else. And they've done no tracking or, or monitoring their levels. And, you know, they come to you with potentially sometimes issues that are difficult to reverse because they've disrupted their whole sort of hormonal uh, axis or the kind of hormonal sort of negative feedback mechanisms. Right. Because the hormones are sort of a concert, right? You don't, testosterone doesn't exist in isolation. Exactly. So, um, you know, there's, there's uh, you know, I mean, I, I guess they kind of, I, we need to set out what the aim is here with, with certainly with our clients, the idea is to try and get someone really uh, still within normal range but ideally top end of normal range but without the kind of collateral issues of 
yeah, you can potentially, I mean, if you're replacing testosterone, men can, can often aromatize, we call it, and produce estrogen. So then sometimes you're then putting people on estrogen blockers to prevent that. And it, it's just, you know, can snowball from there because you're then having a knock-on effect with other hormones. And, um, you know, the downsides, particularly, particularly in the long term, can potentially outweigh, you know, any positive benefit. Okay, I looked it up. So from 1999 to 2016, testosterone in the U.S., according to um, results presented at the 2020 American Uro Urological Association, mm -hmm. uh, testosterone levels um, in 10 to 20 percent of American males um, under the, the 10 to 20 percent of adult males testosterone deficiency was prevalent. And so, and then yeah. between 15 and 39, it was about 20% of men. So if someone comes to you and you see that, the instinct is, oh, I need to go on testosterone. But but what is your, what is your approach? If you, if someone came to you and you, first of all, if someone came to you complaining of these symptoms, what would be your approach? Um. Yeah, so I, I think as as part of the workup, naturally, I mean, you, you will we will test the testosterone levels along with I, I expect other uh, bloods as well, um, and 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 it really the approach depends on the the context. I mean, taking an extreme example, if you if you have someone whereby every aspect of their lifestyle has issues that need to be dealt with, then you know putting them on testosterone is not necessarily the best quick fix. Um, I, my approach tends to be that I, I, you know, largely depends on the levels, the symptoms, and the age of the client, and, and what their intention is. What are they trying to achieve? But it's never a substitute for lifestyle. Mm -hmm. uh, so, you know, I would tend to only prescribe it alongside, you know, evidence that they've changed their lifestyle uh, initially, or, or alongside. Um, I, I think also as well, I mean, we need to sort of acknowledge that there's other ways of boosting testosterone outside of lifestyle. So there are other uh, potential therapies, which probably beyond the scope of today, but we didn't, we don't always just jump into testosterone replacement. There may, there may be some other reason why the testosterone is low. There may be over converting to estrogen. And there's other things that you can, you can do for that. Um, you know, a lot of people ask me about supplements for boosting testosterone. I think there's very few that are, I think, proven, if at, if at all, to help boost testosterone on, in, in the studies. Um, I, I would say that the best supplements are the ones that indirectly uh, boost your testosterone through, for example, improving sleep quality, mm. or the supplements that are going to help you, you know, lift more, uh, or help deal with your stress. They're the ones that are going to help you boost your testosterone. I mean, there's a lot of publicity on a plant-based supplement called Tom Cat Alley, which I think was discussed on a popular podcast, Huberman's podcast a few months <laughs> ago. Everyone uh, loves Andrew Huberman. And, <laughs> yeah. And, and so it seems that every other guy is now, you know, trying to get, get Tom Cat Alley through either, whatever means. Um, yeah. I mean, the studies do seem to be uh, replicated and, and and consistent and um yeah you know, I've, I've not tracked it necessarily myself to see what effect it's had i think the difficulty also is 
it's not a particularly controlled experiment with my clients because they're often doing many things at once. Usually people who've gone on Tonka Alley have made significant other sort of changes or additions. So it's difficult to say whether that in itself has necessarily contributed. Right. If you're listening to a two-hour Andrew Huberman podcast, you're probably pretty interested. You're, you're probably taking care of your sleep and your nutrition mm-hmm. and all your stress or, or trying to anyway. Do you have mm-hmm. it, this whole, you know, it's so funny in the UAE because we, uh, so many of the people I work with and talk to listen to Andrew Huberman and all these other podcasts. Do you have a lot of that now? Like people coming into you and saying, I heard him, I heard him like, like seeking kind of what they've said. Uh, yeah, massive. Yeah, it's, it's a huge um, cohort of my clients. And I think it's probably more just through the nature of what I do, because I'm kind of at that, um, I'm in that kind of subspecialty of kind of wellness and health optimization and longevity. So I guess I tend to sort of attract those clients. So yeah, no, I need to make sure that I'm also listening as well, because I need to predict what they're going to come in with next week. <laughs> Can you talk about men's hormones a little bit? Because I think with women, we always just hear about estrogen and we don't hear as much about progesterone and testosterone and DHA. And when it comes to men's hormones and that, you know, obviously you can't give us a whole uh, lesson in hormonal um, uh, activity in men, but what, what else is just something that men should know sort of top line that men have estrogen, for example. Yeah. I I think it's, you know, we often forget that we, we, all have the same hormones just in different quantities and uh, you're right men also produce estrogen and progesterone albeit in a, a lot lower levels and you know vice versa with females and testosterone um it's a little bit of a gray area um in the you know there's no doubt and coming back to what i was saying about people who get involved in long-term sort of testosterone therapy we have seen consequences where when it's been abused whereby um, people have become symptomatic from the knock-on effects of, say, you know, high estrogen in the long term or uh, estrogen or progesterone suppression. This is in males uh, afterwards and, you know, leading to sort of mood changes and, and sleep disruption. The difficulty there is there's no, you know, we're dealing in an area where there's absolutely no guidelines or, um, you know, sig- significant sort of body of, of evidence. So you're often having to sort of piece it uh, together and you know the, you just want to end up in a situation where you're trying to sort of deal with things naturally because um, as I alluded to before you don't want to end up in a scenario where you're putting someone on testosterone and then you're having to put them on something to deal with the estrogen and then when they come off you're having to put them on some progesterone it just can potentially become quite messy which I think is why it really needs to be done under the supervision of someone who knows what they're doing and 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 you you track levels i mean it's scary the amount of people who have been on this these sorts of products for potentially years and never done blood levels and when you if you do put someone on testosterone therapy for example what's the testing involved moving forward yeah so i you know i, I think you're you're certainly paying attention <clears throat> to the sort of test and if we're focusing on males here i mean you're focusing on the, the, the free and total testosterone, you want to make sure that they're not, we use the term aromatizing, so converting testosterone to estrogen if it gets too high. Um, it'd be sensible to regularly check prostate, so PSA, which is the prostate blood. I also keep an eye on um, uh, the, the CBC, so the blood level, because sometimes the blood can become too thick. Um, I think that, that for me, that that's something that I tr- would track through the year. 
Um, but then, you know, annually, you're talking about something a lot more thorough. So, you know, a general sort of annual sort of health screen, just to sort of keep check of their overall health. Okay. And you mentioned prostate. That's sort of, I think, what started Movember all in the first place was prostate cancer. And it's seems to be, I don't know if it's inevitable. It seems to be where a lot of men end up down the road. It seems to be what kind of gets a lot of guys in the end. Um, where, yeah, where are you, where are we at on prostate cancer in terms of prevention, in terms of what you see, you hear? Yeah, so I, th- I think you're right. I mean, I think what you're saying effectively was that um, prostate cancer is something that's almost in- inevitable. It's a disease of aging for males. It's it's a bit like uh, cardiovascular disease is inevitable for everyone. I think if you look at um, you know pathologists when they're looking at cadavers. Um, majority of males will have some evidence of prostate cancer they died with rather than from. Um, same with cardiovascular disease. I think pretty much everyone would have some degree of atherosclerosis in their coronary vessels. Um, so, uh, you know, what's changed? I, I think uh, there's, there's definitely a lot more awareness of, around, you know, males in general are very difficult at getting to the doctors, but I, I think certainly prostate is something that I'm seeing a lot more men being conscious about sort of keeping track of um and yeah i i think the 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 therapies for sort of prostate cancer uh progressed significantly i think the difficulty with the prostate was sort of determining for a lot of men whether it was something that was going to kill them or it was just a kind of incidental finding and the difficulty you had historically with if you're going to the extent of surgical intervention and radical prostatectomies there were a lot of knock-on effects, I think, with um, uh, impotence subsequently uh, and uh, after this sort of operation. Uh, whereas now those techniques have improved significantly with robotic uh, procedures. Um, so, yeah, I mean, I think in, in, in short, uh, it's something that every male should tra- track. Um, in terms of fr- age, I mean, it should, I, th- I think as part of a general medical after the age of 40, it should be something that you're doing annually. Um, and yeah, it's something that's largely is, is, is avoidable and treatable. Okay. So what other things are you seeing people coming to you for guys? What are, what are the problems? What are the, what are the issues that they're having? Um, well, so, you know, coming back to sort of what I was saying about my practice, the, the large focus is on, they just want to be healthier and everyone's now obsessed with trying to live longer yes so um i i wouldn't you know i wouldn't say that i necessarily see i'm seeing you know people who are sick in a sort of traditional sense um if they're coming with these sort of more vague symptoms of fatigue or sleep disruption or uh, difficulty losing you know central body fat is the common one or you know not 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 building muscle despite you know, nailing a load of protein and, and, you know, having a PT four times a week. They're the sorts of things that I'm sort of dealing with, particularly with my sort of male clients. Mm-hmm. How about and largely because, and, and largely because again, they're not really, they, they, they're watching a lot of these podcasts and at the same time, they know they're not going to really get the answers in the standard health system. Right. When you mentioned everyone wants to live longer, this, this week in particular, I just stopped and I'm like, I feel like no one can handle the fact that they're going to die. <laughs> like I just really feel, cause I listened to all these podcasts too. And 
And I talked to a gynecologist in the States and she said, look, I'm help, I'm happy to help women with hormone therapy, but if, if it's because you want to live until 150 and you're scared of dying. And it just got me thinking like, I don't know what, yes, we all want to live longer and have absolutely nothing wrong with us and optimize all our pathways and yada, yada. But what, I don't know. What do you think about this? Yeah, it's interesting that, I mean, I heard something sort of on the flip side, um, someone was referring to, I think it's called Bhutan, um, you know, a country in South Asia, which I think is placed around 150th in terms of wealth index. So very low down on the- Bhutan, the, Bhutan um, you mean? Yeah, yeah, yeah. And, um, but actually, interestingly, they have, it's either the highest or one of the highest rates of happiness in, in the world. And supposedly a big contributor to their happiness is the fact that they embrace death mm-hmm. and, and celebrating death is, is part of their sort of daily routine. So yeah, it's interesting. I think you're quite right. I think um, death is something that's considered, I guess, taboo and you know people don't like talking about it and there's a lot of negative connotations around it. Um, but yeah, there's, there's got to be something in sort of thinking and talking about it more and, and yeah, and, and, and embracing it. I think, yes, there's probably with this drive to try and live longer, you're probably intensifying that phobia of death at the same time. In a way, right? Like sometimes when I look on social media, I see a bunch of people who are scared of dying and running as fast as they can to, to, to be like that. And I don't even know if that, like, I feel like everything has a pendulum that swings and I just don't even know if that creates stress, right? Because we're all going to have like our bot, our bodies are in balance. Are they not like some, you know, disease might start disease might stop like this anxiety. I just wonder, I just wonder about it. That's all. <laughs> well, I think, yeah, it's just contributing to the overall anxiety in general. I think yeah. just, we're just all, everyone is becoming a lot more anxious. And then, yeah, I think uh, if you, if you listen to the kind of uh, anecdotes of people on the, deathbeds you know all, all these things that were kind of grinding away at in day-to-day life become irrelevant and the the, the you know common trends that is reported is that people you know regret not being present present in the moment spending time with loved ones um you know making you know, taking chances taking risks yeah. um so yeah we need a reality check in well, I've been to Bhutan and there's absolutely not one Starbucks You've been? Awesome. yeah I've been there and awesome. there's not one Starbucks there's not one anything that you would recognize. So I think that probably has something to do with it. Yeah. And <laughs> so did you actually, so interestingly then, so did you see that uh, sort of aspect of death? Was it something that you came across or was it? Yeah, definitely. Sort of, like, yeah. I, you know, the prayer, yeah. prayer flags everywhere. Yeah. They were talking about it constantly and they were so, they were the happiest people. They have, um, I think they have a happiness index or they have some like government mm. level happiness thing. Um, but I did laugh because one of the guys that was helping us when we were hiking, he was, they were joking around with each other and wrestling. And then I heard him say, uh, John Cena from WW, like the wrestler's name. And I just laughed because like he was speaking in his language. And then all of a sudden he said, John Cena. So I'm like, ah, you guys are getting it. They were very, very happy. Um, the other thing about dying is that, I mean, it's not too woo woo. You might consider it too woo woo, but there are a lot of confirmed cases of near-death experiences where people speak about having a near-death experience and then having sort of, it wasn't terrible. Whatever they describe, people that have 
do, are you familiar with this at all? This is something I console myself with. It's like, I heard Zach Bush, who's another podcaster who talks a lot about um, health. I heard he, he said he worked in the ICU and he had n- numbers of people he brought back and they'd say, why did you bring me back? Or like, it was amazing. <laughs> uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, yeah, I can't say I've that experience. So I, 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 yeah, I'm, I tend to spend more time talking about how many years we can increase on people's lives. Yeah, uh, yeah. And I think probably the age group or category of people I'm seeing uh, haven't yet had a near-death experience. Yeah. Well, this is what I like about you because you're like, very grounded in science and evidence so when you start getting a bit too like woo, you're you know you'll pull me back i'll pull back yeah it's okay <laughs> um so what about anxiety because everyone's sort of talking about a general level of anxiety rising it seems like there's anxiety there's a lot of gut problems the gut brain access how does this play out in like are men that you see becoming better at realizing that it's all connected or, or not? Well, so and another aspect of what I, I see is, is a lot of gut issues and, um, you know, I've classified them as sort of functional gut issues. So people who have again, been through the process and procedure of you say ruling out the sort of common some serious stuff or, or mainstream sort of diseases. And then they're kind of left with this sometimes, you know, tag of irritable bowel syndrome or IBS, which, you know, is not really a proper diagnosis. It's just describing that you have symptoms of bloating, change in bowels or discomfort on most days of the month, which is a significant proportion of people. Um, but again, people are kind of led to believe that it's a sort of lifestyle issue, which it is. Um, but they're not really given an adequate solution. I mean, people are still told, you know, it's a, it's a, little, a little bit in your head and try and relax and take antispasmodics. And sometimes even, certainly when I started, it was part of the guidelines of putting people on antidepressants. And, you know, I, th- I think that just kind of highlighted the impact that the mind had on, on, on the gut rather than necessarily antidepressants being the right kind of approach. I think that was just, again, patching over the problem and creating other issues. Um, so yeah, we were dealing a lot with these issues and, and a significant component of it is, um, cerebral, uh, or, 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 you know, stress in general, which can be physical, but certainly, uh, cerebral stress. And, you know, the thing that I make people aware is that we can throw all the sort of gut interventions at someone, whether it be probiotics or herbals or even, you know, pharmaceuticals, but if we're not addressing the stress component, then it's either going to not resolve completely or relapse very, very quickly. So there is a definitely an intimate interaction. And there's more and more evidence coming out that there are particular strains of, of bacteria that um, have been associated with mental health issues, whether it be anxiety, depression. Uh, we see it in child developmental disorders, in autism and ADHD. And conversely, when you're using strains of probiotics, Certainly in certain studies, and particularly the animal studies, uh, you see improvements in psychiatric or psychology Mm -hmm. uh, of the the clients. Um, And and also conversely, when they're doing studies in in mice and they have have bred strains of mice where they don't have any microbiome, and they show all the symptoms of mental illness. Right, right. So what about, okay, so all these diets, 
these ways of eating to optimize all this biohacking stuff. And we have carnivore and keto and intermittent fasting and fasting. And you do, you do a lot of this stuff, vegan diets. I'm hearing a lot about pro-metabolic eating. I'm hearing a lot about how we need carbs. Maybe I'm hearing a lot about how we have intended pathways that will help us that, that run our bodies that, that some of these, these plans actually make us work on backup pathways. Keto doesn't work for everyone all the time. It only works for a short time, vegan eating. Like what's your, how do you cut through all that? I think, yeah, exactly. It's because it's something that you could get bogged down in and, and, you know, there's people on both sides of the, I guess, spectrum who would be able to sort of provide you study, a study or studies to back, back the sort of premise. Uh, and I think that comes down to a couple of things. One is that uh, largely a lot of the studies are pretty poor quality. Um, I think also as well, there isn't one perfect diet. Um, whilst, you know, if, if, if well-designed, uh, you know, a vegan diet and even a carnivore diet, so, you know, the polar opposites can be therapeutic uh, in the short term, I think people lose sight of the fact that it, we just need to simplify it a little bit in the kind of the rules that I make are that, well, you know, if it didn't exist a hundred years ago, then you probably shouldn't be eating it or should only eat it in moderation. So I think it's rather than demonizing certain macros, I think it's more about uh, quality. I'm also a little bit wary about when people go and take out whole macros for long periods of time. There obviously are circumstances where that, as I said, can be therapeutic. But it's not something that should be done long term. Um, or I certainly I, I think in terms of from a risk mitigation and lifespan perspective, it's it's probably not the going to be the ideal approach. Um, the other point is that we are we have evolved to be opportunistic omnivores. So we are designed to be flexible and eat whatever was available. Um, that, that doesn't mean that you can just go and eat whatever you want, but I, I think it highlights the point that. Uh, we need to retain some metabolic flexibility. So, yeah, I, I think what I'm, the point I'm trying to make is that a lot of people are carb addicted, for example, and don't have that ability to shift between, you know, fueling on carbohydrates and to to fats. So, I yeah, I think thing is just about eating whole food, not cutting out, you know, big groups of you know groups of macros, and trying to retain some metabolic flexibility and in reality you're going to be somewhere in the, in the middle of that spectrum that's just about the most reasonable thing i've heard anyone say in the last i don't know how long you know uh what we were designed to do 100 years ago we were designed to eat a bunch of different things because we didn't know what we would get and even intermittent fasting common sense wise makes sense because we didn't wake up and have a buffet outside of our um window or wherever we lived outside of our cave <laughs> we might not have any food right then so yeah exactly and I, I i think you know people spend too much time on the kind of lever of you know what they're eating mm. uh and, and and how much they're eating i.e the caloric value um missing the point that you know we we think we can consciously control how many calories we eat and how much we burn through exercise the body doesn't work like that the brain will make adjustments according to what you do so it's not something that's in, in our control. 
or certainly it's not in our control in directly just trying to change our caloric consumption. And then the third lever, which, yeah, again, in the last sort of probably 10, 15 years, it's become a lot more popular and people are realizing there are health benefits, um, whether it be through sort of circadian rhythm, through sort of daily time restricted eating, or the kind of longer types of fasting, which have been shown to be very, very potent inducers of this process of autophagy and sort of cellular renewal and cleansing. And from my practice, you know that it's something that we use a lot of. Um, it's it's extremely therapeutic. I mean, we've solved issues from idiopathic urticaria, quite you know severe, uh, you know allergic type rashes with no obvious cause, through to uh, you know inflammatory arthritis and, and autoimmune conditions. And and then this is something actually, if you if you delve into the research, there's actually been you know the studies on these things for decades. It's just they're kind of left by the wayside. I'm hearing in women a lot of, and it, obviously women are are not men, but talking a lot about this tendency to work out so hard that you actually can stress yourself out more. Is there any corollary for men? Do you ever see men coming in and do you ever say like you're you're hitting it too hard at the gym, <laughs> or is cardio oh, doing too much cardio 100%. or no? <laughs> yeah, yeah, no, yeah, yeah, hundred percent. I mean, this is pretty much what I'm seeing day in day out. This is not uh, a sex specific issue okay. um, because again the, the sorts of clients that I'm dealing with are you know generally pretty well educated people who are tuned in to you know the information out there so by the time they come and see me they've tried everything right. or certainly thought they've tried everything um, and yeah the, you know I always use the term sort of burning the candle at both ends that that is at the root cause of a, a large proportion of of the symptomology that I'm dealing with, whether it be body composition issues or sleep disruption, sleep disruption or gut problems. Right. So when you're burning the candle at both ends, you can actually be inhibiting your body's ability to burn fat, to be in stasis, to be, yeah. So you're, you're, you're not losing weight and you're wondering why, or you're gaining weight and you're wondering why those things happen in men too. Oh, completely. Yeah. Yeah. Not definitely. Yeah, it's it's um, yeah. I mean, you're you're the three. I mean, there's many changes that happen, but three sort of obvious changes that I see with the way the bottle hand, body handles energy in a high stress or high cortisol environment. One is that um, your body will constantly release sugar into the bloodstream because it wants to, you know, needs energy to fight or fly, which then in turn has a knock-on effect potentially with insulin resistance and metabolic sort of syndrome. Um, the second thing is that your body wants to hold on to the long-term energy reserve and your most nutrient dense tissue is, oh, sorry, not nutrient dense, calorically dense tissue is fat. So that's why you start to sort of store it uh, centrally. And the third thing that I notice happening is that um, you break down muscle. So if you, if you really are pushing it, the, the weight may not change or even go down, but you, you'll find that a lot of these people are losing muscle which you know, will spiral them into a, being more and more metabolically broken. And, and this is actually an important topic. Everyone kind of compares or competes about whether they should be eating carbs versus uh, um, fats, but protein becomes very neglected. And I would say that this is a little bit sex specific in the sense that far more of my female clients are, are underestimating or not even estimating at all because it's not even on their radar. Uh, probably just say under eating protein 
And, that, and that's part of the reason why a lot of them are ending up under muscle. It's not that they're carrying too much fat in terms of absolute weight terms, but relatively as a percentage, because they're under muscle, uh, they have very high fat percentage. And there's multiple reasons for that. Uh, I think a large part of that is this drive now, particularly probably more so in females of going more plant-based or mm. vegetarian or, or vegan, uh, not considering the protein intake. And then also women in general, I know it's changed as a shift, but women in general staying away from resistance training or you know lifting weights because of that fear of becoming too bulky, particularly if you're already starting from a point where you feel you're too big. Yeah. Um, when it doesn't work like that, I mean, you've seen those before and afters of a lot of those kind of women who've then become fitness models or whatever it is that mm -hmm. transform their body shape. And then, and then you look how many calories they're also consuming. Um, it's just, it's just, it just doesn't happen. Uh, old habits die hard though. Cause I'm gen X. I'm the, I'm the stairmaster generation. <laughs> you know, we, I would be on that thing for 90 minutes and I'd say, I'll do my weights after. And then I would never do them. And it's so embedded in our brains that you need to do the cardio yeah. to burn everything. Um, okay. So lastly, andropause, which I'm seeing a lot more articles about, you know, the male menopause I'm seeing articles. They're always titled, like, is there a male menopause? They're always sort of skeptical. <laughs> and you mentioned earlier that it's a slow decline, but could you just sort of give a broad um, description of it and how it might present itself in men and at what ages? Yeah. I, you, so you know, we probably joked before that you know, mother nature's only optimizes to the point of procreation. So after that, you know, no one really cares about us. Everything's kind of falling off. And, you know, typically we were procreating, you know, late teens, early, early twenties. So once you're kind of getting into your thirties, I can't remember the exact stat, one or 2% of your testosterone is dropping each year. It may even be more. Um, so it, it's, it's a bit more of a, slow sort of slog and 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 for that reason can be quite subtle um at the same time it's not something that's very well uh recognized in the medical community and then in turn it's not very well uh treated or or ignored uh and, and, and un unlike women where there's a you know defined sort of period for most women where they'll have a sort of year to five year period where they can suffer quite severely with the, the sort of textbook night sweats, hot flushes, low mood, mood swings type scenario, you know, the worst end of the, the spectrum. Um, it's just not something that's been spoken about in, in men and is only really probably coming to attention in the last last few years. So, um, yeah, it's something that's definitely real. Um, but it, you, you know, it's not, again, part of the mainstream sort of medical education. I don't even, even think it still is alongside nutrition. I'd be surprised even if they're still doing, you know, if they've introduced any nutrition lessons, if they have, then I'm sure it's all wrong. Well, I just like the problem with these things is the, the, you know, the, I guess the evidence is changing very quickly. And the, the problem is, I mean, you know, how quickly can you change school curriculums? Mm -hmm. Well, male, female menopause isn't in the school curriculums either in mm -hmm. most, I think in the, in Britain it is now, would you give uh, men going through this, would you give them hormone therapy? If, if they needed it? Yeah, yeah, if it was appropriate. Yeah, yeah, for sure. For sure. Okay. I mean, you know, andropause is just another term for low T. Right. It's right. just, you know, a more scientific way of referring to low T. 
so yeah, on a case by case basis, um, and we, you know, we have a, a caseload of people, but we manage them, um, you know, appropriately. We're tracking and, you know, we're tracking the numbers, how they feel, and you know, uh, what else is going on in the body, really. Just to just because you know the idea here is it's not about it's it's that trade off. It's not about just improving performance. We want we want to optimize them, but also not you know lead to a quicker death. Well, in terms of women, it's often a time of life where women realize, and when they're in perimenopause, that they can't sort of function the way that they had before, burning the candle at both ends. And I assume, is it sort of the similar thing for men where you're like, okay, you need to overhaul everything, your lifestyle, et cetera? Uh, yeah, and, but, but definitely, and as I sort of alluded to before, I think it's a combination of lifestyle change and, you know, whatever therapy it is. But, you know, sometimes we have to be realistic that there's only so much you can boost someone's natural hormonal levels beyond a certain point. Um, and, you know, I, I will commonly get asked, you know, what, what are the effects on my kind of lifespan? And I, I think this is a very complex area. And I think if you look at, uh, overall, you kind of meta-analyses on on sort of all-cause mortality, rather than just kind of cherry-picking one thing like cardiovascular disease or prostate cancer deaths and things. I think it seems to be, in terms of lifespan, neutral. Um, but then, obviously, of course, there's significant health span improvements for for people. And that, but people have to be aware that that's on a population level. So that's not to say that there won't be individuals there where it has a detrimental effect. So you know, there may be, you know, if there is a prostate cancer, there are some prostate cancers that are very testosterone sensitive. And could that drive it? Yes, it could. But equally, there could be someone where you prevented osteoporosis and, you know, they don't have a hip fracture, um, you know, and they, they've lived longer. So that just highlights the point of it, it has to really become individualized and, and the importance of monitoring. Okay. And that's with hormone therapy you were just talking about. Yeah. Yeah. Well, listen, thank you very much, Dr. Nasser. You're always illuminating. And um, if anyone wants to find Dr. Nasser, he's at DNA Health Center in Dubai. Beautiful. Right. So you, ha you have three beautiful locations now? Uh, we do. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm, although I'm stationed at uh, the Al Wassel Road one in, in Jumeirah. Um, we actually recently moved. We were in Jumeirah, Al Qasim. and we moved two months ago. So, okay. Yeah. You'll find me there five days a week. Okay, keeping people healthy and helping them live forever. <laughs> right. And be less anxious and sleep better and all the other stuff. Thank you so much. Pleasure. Thanks for having me, Amr. That's it for this week. If you liked the podcast, make sure to subscribe, rate, and review. We'll see you next time on the Live Healthy Podcast.